Welcome to Alchemical Dialogues, an Amber Light podcast. Join Dr. Henry Cretella and Reverend Lewis W. Stewart Jr. for their discussion on Be a Liberationist, Be Free. The information provided on this website and these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this website and in these podcasts is intended to be a substitute for medical, health, therapeutic, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed by the guests in these podcasts are not necessarily the opinions of Amberlight International and anyone associated with this organization. I'm so glad you could make it, Reverend Stewart. Glad to be here, Henry. Thank you for that. I I, I put it in the announcement, but we had a little trouble getting together just to sketch out the topic. And, you know, Kathleen introduced me to you. And then we're off and running for two hours. And I... (laughs) It's like I, I met my old friend. <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way. You know, just for people who are who are listening, if you don't know Dr. Stewart, he's in Rochester, New York. No, no, no doctor, Henry, no doctor. Reverend Stewart was born in New, Newburgh, New York, and studied at Orange County Community College, got a Bachelor of Science in Political Science and History from SUNY Brockport, Master of Divinity from Colgate, Rochester, Crozier Theological Seminary, and then he studied at Syracuse University School of Social Work, was ordained as an elder in the Churches of God and Christ in 1972, and uh, he is presently the pastor of Christian Community Church. He also co-founded and co-organized the United Christian Leadership Ministry of Western New York, of which he's presently the president. And he's also a board member of the Greater Rochester Community of Churches, co-chair of the Rochester Coalition for Police Reform, and current president of the United Christian Leadership Ministry. He's also told me very proudly that he's a cancer survivor, despite really enormous odds. That was really impressive to hear that. And maybe we'll, we'll touch on that. When I talked to my partner, Kathleen, to me, oh, he's a Christian minister with a lot of energy, and and he's an activist. And when I said to you, so maybe we'll talk about your community activism, you said, no, I don't think of myself as a community activist. I am a liberator, liberationist, right? Liberationist. So there's so much more about his credentials, his activities in the prison, and what he's done for equality, and gun control, and and uh, racial issues. And I I should mention, because it is just so interesting, he also studied wrestling. He wrestled, he boxed. This is really fascinating to me, a student of both Taekwondo and Jeet Kune Do. So as a karate student myself, I'm really curious about Jeet Kune Do. (laughs) Probably won't get to it on this podcast, but one of these days you and I are going to sit down and we're going to talk about your experience in Jeet Kune Do. Um, We can do that. (laughs) <laughs> so maybe we can start with, it sounded so important to you to say, I'm not an activist, I'm a liberationist. Maybe we could start there. Okay. All right, that, that, that's a fair question. And uh, again, thank you for having me on this podcast. And I see my good friend, uh, Dr. William Wilkinson uh, in the audience there. Love him. Hello, Doc. I style myself a a liberationist because of the fact that Jesus to me means freedom. And uh, basically, I try to model or style myself after him. I would not call Jesus an activist. I would call him a liberationist. And that's why in many uh, theological books, Moltmann or James Cone or others, he is characterized as Jesus the liberator. For me, a community activist is one who assumes a cause, and, and, and rightly so with passion and commitment, but uh, not necessarily an ideological nor a theological factor. For me, the ideology and the theology means a lot because it rather shapes my thinking, my consciousness, my reflections, and who I am. An an activist for me, and I might be wrong on this, will take up a cause. And I'm not knocking 
people who style themselves activists because that's their thing. And I respect that. And we need activists in this world. But usually activism is based upon on one cause and built around one issue at times. Whereas for me, liberation is about life. It's about life giving, life promoting, life redemption as opposed to one particular issue. That might not make sense to everybody, but uh, it certainly makes sense to me. So the fact that my whole life, the arc of it at this point in time has been basically one of liberation. And it, it was a, a lot of growth, a lot of thinking, a lot of reflection to bring me to that perspective and that point of view. But once I reached it in college, when I was there, I, I, I never let go of it. And then when I started reading James Cone and Frederick Douglass and the rest and uh, the writings of Che Guevara and uh, others, it really opened my mind up to this whole theme of liberation and, and, and um, Jesus as liberator and the God of freedom. And so for me, that, that, that shapes who I am in, in gist. That makes so much sense to me. I've been thinking about, I, I teach a lot of classes primarily on Sufism, but also humanism and kind of psych psychological, spiritual classes. And I, I guide people. That's kind of my ministry. And, you know, we talk about doing spiritual practice and meditation. But this interesting thing, I've been thinking about this for me, that the classes in particular, it's we, we, we read the, the spiritual teachings, not, they're not just spiritual, humanistic, psychological, and there's an attitude adjustment. I mean, that's what I've been calling it, that I can hear it in other people and I can feel it in myself and it cuts across everything. It isn't just an attitude adjustment about race or about a particular cause. It's a shift in the way that I perceive the world and that I react. And that is a foundation that hopefully starts coming out in actions. And I may pick a particular action or cause, mm -hmm. but the foundation behind it is this attitude adjustment that comes from studying and the ideology you were talking about. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, the way you put it. And for you, it came, you came in college, it sounds like. I mean, it's kept on developing, but you had a turn in college where that really grabbed you. Right, I did. It, see, it was a struggle for me coming out of a Black Pentecostal tradition. During the, the 60s, which was basically my time of awareness and struggle, most Black Pentecostal churches, as well as Black Baptist churches, even though the, the problem of race was up front, there was a quietude about it. I come from a small town. town. They call it the city. There's a town of Newburgh and the city. And so I was born and raised in the city of Newburgh, uh, which was a, a town about 35 to 40,000 uh, in between uh, West Point and Poughkeepsie on the Hudson River. Although most of the Blacks went to the same, because there's only two high schools. One was Newburgh Free Academy, and the other one was uh, a parochial school, St. Patrick's. Then there were two junior high schools and several elementary schools. And even though we all went to one school together, both Blacks and whites and some Latinos, there was a tracking system in which Blacks at that time, at that time they had what they call regents courses, or region studies or something like that. And Blacks were usually kept in the uh, general course study, whereas whites were in the regents study, most of them. But aside from that, the segregation in Newburgh was, was very real because I literally, literally now, lived down by the railroad tracks. So if you would go down through Newburgh and down through South Water and North Water Street, on the other side of that, right down below where the, where the railroad tracks uh, and, and the passenger trains and the freight trains used to sweep by and stuff like that. And right near that was the banks of the Hudson River. And across from the Hudson River, you had Beacon and, and you had Westchester County, et cetera, Dutchess mm -hmm. County, et cetera. So it's, it's beautiful scenery. But the fact was that segregation was real. Right. So, you could really feel it. Yes. 
And so when you deal with Black Pentecostalism, and, and at that time, the segregation was real, but no one was doing any protesting. The whole thing was to have a moral, spiritual light, to keep your life enriched. But, but that was it. No one in the Sunday morning sermons ever heard anything about protests or anything like that until the 1950s and Dr. King came about. And even before Dr. King was Adam Clayton Powell, was the Black Baptist pastor of Abyssinia Baptist Church, which was located in Harlem. And so you had all that going on, that whole mix going on at the same time. I remember in 1965, 66, there was a riot in Newburgh based upon an issue of police brutality. Police swept into the, um, the Black neighborhood there and shot off tear gas and things of that sort. And you could smell the acrid taste of the, of the tear gas. And a police car was tipped over and things of that sort. So for me, it was quite a, not a struggle necessarily, but a discarding of certain preconceived notions and attitudes and, and thought sets and acquiring and somehow new thought sets when you're dealing with this dawning consciousness of who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. I remember back then, and, and, and some of you probably remember it too, that uh, every morning you pledge allegiance to the flag. I don't know whether some of you, I, I'm older than most of you all, so. No, I had that. Okay. Right. And, and, and so at some point, at some point, I stopped doing that. And my, see, my father was a minister. He was an associate pastor of a, and, and my uncle was the pastor of a church of God in Christ in Newburgh. And uh, they would have to call my father to the school and want to know why your kid refuses to pledge allegiance to the flag. And I was refusing to do it. I didn't know why Hmm. I was doing it, but I felt that that flag did not have my purpose at heart. I'm going to admit something that I've never admitted before, Henry, and I think I have, is that I never felt like a citizen of the United States of America until Barack Obama was elected. And that's when I felt that I was a full citizen in this country when he was elected president. And that was only a few short years ago. I've always felt like a, a stranger and an alien in a foreign land. And I've always felt that way. I've always felt separate and apart. Uh, But at the same time, struggling in America relative to who I am and my identity as a black man. What kept you going? I think what kept me going is the fact of um, my family. I think a lot of people were struggling with that. The camaraderie of the movement that was going on at that particular time. It was not only the civil rights movement, but what succeeded the civil rights movement what was in parallel with the civil rights movement at some point was the black power movement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was going on. And then uh, going to college and meeting similar black students mm-hmm. who thought about race and who thought about America in the same way that you thought about it. And then you had these interactions and these discussions and, and, and it began to liberate, uh, liberate your soul, liberate your consciousness, uh, your identity as to who you really are as a person, who you really are as a man, who you really are as a woman. And um, I went to uh, Orange County Community College. When I went there, that was in 19, I think it was 67. They had no black courses there. There was no black history course at MCC. No, I'm sorry, OCC. And that was in Middletown and and we got it. And then transferring to Brockport, there was no black history curriculum there until we fought for that also. So the whole thing of dawning and consciousness 
and discovering who you are was also tied up with this intellectual journey of reading, of looking at your roots, of looking at your place in world history as a person and as, and as a Black person specifically. You went to Brockport. Yeah. And you went to Syracuse. Yeah. So you didn't go to primarily Black colleges. No. In some sense, I regret not going to a Black college um, because I think that there are some benefits of going to a Black college. Solidarity, the uh, fraternity, finding your place. And I, and I think uh, Black colleges offer a certain type of uh, philosophy and worldview about one as a Black man and one as a Black woman and about the fact that you need to make a contribution mm -hmm. uh, to the world and to society. So you, you really didn't get that at Brockport. Uh, what, what, what you did was you had a group of Black students there and those were some, I would say, uh, transitional years. There were radical years because several things were going on. Uh, number one, there was the, the murders at Kent State at that time. Right. There was the murders at Jackson State in which uh, a couple of Black students were killed. But uh, no one remembers the Black students at Jackson State. But right. they do remember what took place at Kent State. Right. Right. So you had the war in Vietnam. Uh, you had the uh, civil rights movement going on at the same time. So we black students got together at Brockport and we formed an organization called the Black Student Liberation Front. Because of the whole thing of liberation fronts, that that title uh, was popular at that time. Because remember now you had the white counterpart, which is the SDS or the uh, Students for Democratic Society. They were the ones that took over um, Cornell, Columbia University with Mark right. Rudd and, right. and, and those people, et cetera. SDS was the, the radical wing for the war against, against the war in Vietnam, whereas uh, what we were doing uh, locally was really fighting for, uh, number one, a, a black curriculum uh, on African-American history as well as African history. Number two, we wanted to have a, a Black cultural center, uh, which was off the campus in Brockport. And number three, we wanted, in some sense, to protect ourselves against the racism and racist acts that were going on. I mean, you would go in the, let's say, in the, um, in the restroom at the uh, student union, and you would see N-words written on the walls and things of that sort. And, and so uh, no one can tell me that Brockport was not a particularly racist place because it was. But then the demonstrations that took place at Brockport, uh, there, there are a couple of things that took place. Uh, one was the, the burning down of the Black Cultural Center. Mm. Um, then we organized a march through the center of town, pro-civil rights, and also protesting the war against Vietnam. Vietnam. We did the same thing also. That was called a teaching or something like that. We had on campus uh, Dick Gregory. Uh, we invited Shirley Chisholm. We had invited Julian Bond. All these people came out. I don't know if you guys remember William Kunstler. Uh, William Kunstler was a uh, lawyer from out of New York City. And he right, defended right, yeah. uh, a lot of uh, radicals right. at that particular time. So I had a chance to go out, talk with him and sit down and meet him. And so all of these things was basically an extension of my participation at Orange County Community College when we fought for the same thing. And then originally being a member of the NAACP and also uh, attending the March on Washington on August 28, 1963. I was 17 years old at that particular time. Long history. It's a lot there. Yeah. So then you went to Syracuse for social work. I went to Syracuse for social work only for a year because we got pregnant. And uh, uh, so I had to uh, back out of that because it was I was commuting and also I was working at the same time. Oh. Uh, my wife then, she was a teacher and 
she had gotten pregnant with our daughter. And so I, I, I felt that I, I just couldn't hold to that anymore, that I, I had to uh, stay home and help her, which I did. So I forgot, I wanted to go back and, and right. complete getting the MSW, but I, but I never did. Right. So you really devoted yourself to the ministry. Yes. After college, right? In your bio, you said, you kind of touched on this, but I wanted to go into it a little more, that you believed in the prophetic calling for social justice. Right. And I find that a really intriguing phrase. Can you talk about that? Sure, I can do that. In seminary, we had to read, we had to read the old, what we call the Old Testament, what was really the Jewish Tanakh. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of the reading dealt with the book of Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and some of the major prophets. If one does a in-depth study of the prophets, one comes across with the great and dynamic theme that God, as described by the Hebrew prophets, is opposed to injustice and unrighteousness because basically righteousness and justice have the same root word. And so they mean both the same thing. So when we talk about a righteous God, we talk about a God of justice. So when you look at ancient Israel at that particular time relative to the, the Tanakh and the prophets, they had a stratified society in which the rich in that society were oppressing the poor. I mean, you, you, you see that in the book of Amos, where Amos talks about that. You see that in, and I think it's either Kings or Chronicles. Ahab and Jezebel, they want the property of this man in the Bible, and, and they take it. You also see it in Luke, where there's Lazarus who sits outside of the, the gate or the house of the rich man. And, and a rich man doesn't feed him, and, and Lazarus is slowly dying. And then Lazarus finally dies and goes into the bosom of Abraham, which represent, is representative of paradise, where as the rich man ends up in hell. And so the, the point there is the fact of the rich not doing their due diligence and responsibility relative to the poor. If you look at Mary's Magnificat, and in and, and which she talks about the, the rich have been overthrown, et cetera, et cetera. You see, what we tend to do is try to spiritualize everything. We try to spiritualize the works of Jesus, his ministry. We try to spiritualize the works of the prophets and not come to grips with the radical and hard sayings of the Bible and biblical truth. And what Jesus is saying, and what they're all saying is, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. And, and, and we that, that goes by our heads. So we say, well, blessed are the meek in spirit, for they shall see God. So we, we put a different interpretation and a different spin on it. But really, these are hard, radical sayings. So when I study the prophets and I see their call for a radical obedience to God. And my radical obedience to God does not just have to do with my moral or internal moral life. Because in the old days, during the first and second great awakening, the evangelicals put the spin on it that you have to clean up your, your, your internal life. You have to stop smoking. You have to stop gambling. You have to stop running around with women and this and that and everything like that. So it was a poke at getting your own personal life cleaned up. But yet, but yet, they didn't address runaway capitalism that was going on in America. The labor market that kept poor people diminished and oppressed. They didn't deal with these uh, rich robber barons like the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and others. Uh, who were making money, but people were living poorly. They didn't deal with slavery. Even now, uh, uh, people still want to uh, see the founding fathers as number one, being Christian, as somehow being uniquely gifted, 
and number three, uh, being these great moral leaders. But yet they were hypocrites and they were corrupt because most of them, like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and others, kept slaves. When you keep a slave like that and, and you dehumanize people, that for me is not radical obedience to the gospel at all. And so taking all that into account, all that history into account, and, and, and then doing readings on, um, with again, I, I, I mentioned Cone because I think Cone uh, has had a real uh, impact in my intellectual life. So Conan and um, Theodos Roberts, Gandhi, others, other writers, etc. They began to shape my life. And then I went back to the church and started preaching and teaching about radical obedience to the gospel. <laughs> and, and it means more than just interior salvation. You know, yeah. it, 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 when you're saying, when, when the preacher says to you, come up to the altar and be saved. And I say, all right, but not just save me, save my family, save my people, save me from oppression, save me from injustice. That's the call. And the call is not just interior salvation, but is to change my way of being. And so that I'm treated and seen as a human being and as a whole person. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's beautifully said. I think in our lingo, we talk a lot, or I do, about spiritual bypass, where you use spirituality. It's not always on purpose, but it's, it's as an excuse. Mm -hmm. If you were a better person, this wouldn't be happening. Or if you meditated better, this wouldn't be happening. So the other one, I think we talked about this in our prep session. I'm a fan of Reza Aslan, who wrote Zealot. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if we talked about that. I've only heard him speak a few times on video. But he's so well-spoken and he's so knowledgeable. So Zealot was his attempt to look at the historical Jesus from non-biblical sources. And it doesn't quite fit with what you read in the Bible, which to me that's understandable and okay. The biggest thing I got out of it that I really liked is he said, it looks like the historical Jesus was an honest-to-goodness rebel. He wasn't just talking about, we're going to go to another place that's better in heaven. He wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire and make a more just society right then. Mm -hmm. And that's why he got killed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and he had these sources. And, you know, apparently at that time, you may, you'll know more about this than me. There were a lot of messiahs around. That was the thing yes. of the day. Yes. And what made Jesus unique in his view, was the resurrection, mm -hmm. that the other messiahs didn't get that. So, uh, right. and then also that, you know, Christianity wasn't exactly making a lot of headway until Paul. Right. And that wasn't exactly the Christianity, supposedly, that Jesus was preaching. Paul opened it up more universally. And even then, it wasn't, it, it he started to back off until everybody got massacred. And then his writings are what survived. So again, that's just his take on it. But right. thinking about it the way you put it is that potentially the historical Jesus was an honest-to-goodness rebel who is saying we need to change things now. As well as I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't take what you're saying as meaning we don't work on our inner lives. We don't change. Yeah, all of that's foundational, but it gets expressed in our actual life and what we value and how we look at things. We don't put things under the rug and and just try to sweep it away as if it never happened and it it means something else. Well, here's, here's what I believe. I, I, I believe as, as a minister that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. I believe that. I believe that he had a unique God consciousness, which was different than the other messiahs. And as you say, Henry, there were other messiahs at that particular time. One is written in, I think, in the Gospel of Mark, where the, the disciples come to Jesus and complain that there was someone healing others in the name of Jesus. And they, they wanted to take this person to task. And Jesus says that he who is for us is not against us. 
and they left him alone. And I think also we need to face the fact that Jesus was crucified by the Romans for being a rebel, right. a rebel against the state. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Romans crucified him, although his crucifixion or death was engineered by some leaders. But basically, that was the gist of it. But what I'm saying is the fact that we have to have a holistic approach to the Bible and to the gospel. And that holistic approach is summed up in these words, and it impacts systems if it was demanded as such. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then there's the words of the prophet Micah, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Then love others as you love yourself and walk humbly before thy God. I mean, this ethical saying would basically guide us in our relationships, not only with each other, but with also the system uh, that we both work and live in. But you see, it's too bad that this system that we work in and the world system that we work in is not about the do unto others. I mean, the Muslims have do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's in the Quran uh, it, and it's in Hindus believe it also. And if only we would follow that ethic and carry out that ethic, but we don't because of the fact of greed, of violence and of dehumanization. Right. And I think you mentioned in that story that Basically, Jesus saying, you know, you don't fight people who are with you. My experience has been we get too caught up in form. Yeah. Like, I have no trouble talking with you. You know, I was raised Catholic. That may make it a little bit easier. But what I like about the, the philosophy I follow is that there are a lot of exemplars. So mm -hmm. there's Jesus, there's Buddha, there's Muhammad, there's Ram, there's... Mm -hmm. and. It's a little hard to manage because there are so many. But on the other <laughs> hand, it makes you realize in, in our tradition, it's like the perennial philosophy. There's one thread of wisdom that's coming through, and it's coming through many different exemplars. So pick the one or two or five or six that you resonate with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and go for it. And, but that doesn't mean you have to go fight with everybody else just because they're forms. Right. <laughs> right. 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 So you had this foundational experience early on that really motivated you. You started to bring it into your life externally and in some of the causes you were talking about with racial equality and getting courses in college. So talk a little bit more about how that's shown itself in your life as you have gotten older. So again, how, how has it been showing itself in your adult life? Well, it reflects itself in my adult life by my commitment and passion. I think at times, Henry, that, and we have to be careful of this, that, and, and I've seen it a couple of years ago in demonstrations, and I've seen it all my life in demonstrations where people get so passionate about justice and that they become vociferous obstinate in one dimension, in a sense that instead of love driving them, they're driven by anger and vengeance. And that anger and vengeance can drive you into a very bad place where one believes that he or she has the total answers to everything and no one else has any answers at all. So in, in some sense, I've seen this attitude of intransigence on the right. I've also seen it on the left, where people from both groups will stop you from disagreeing with them and label you for disagreeing with them because they think they have the answers. And, it, it, and I, I say that to say this. As a young man, I used to be that. Hmm. I used to be that way until I began to really examine myself and, and begin to say, everybody has a right to say what they want to say. Everybody has a right to believe what they want to believe. They're human. 
So why am I thinking that I'm the only one that's right, that I'm the only true believer and no one else is, that no one else has a right to say anything and I have all the answers? Well, there's something pretty screwed up about that (laughs) when you think about it, and it really is. And so when you do a thorough investigation of your thought formations and, and, and who you are as a person, how you interact with people and who am I? Well, if I'm a true liberationist, I can't stop other people from expressing who they are, even though I disagree sometimes with what they have to say, you know, mm-hmm. but they have the right to say it. It's their right. And I remember about two or three years ago, and I think people know this, where uh, Daniel Prude was was killed in Rochester. Right. And um, we had a community meeting at a community church during the summer. And usually what happens is that um, we invite officials who can answer questions relative to the community uh, and can, can give some answers. So we call the community meeting. We had the mayor there. We had the chief of police. That was uh, Ron Singletary at that particular time. His staff, Mayor Warren. We had uh, Willie Lightfoot, who was the vice president of the um, city council. Mm -hmm. We had Loretta Scott. And we had everybody there. And and we had them sitting up front because we wanted some questions answered. We wanted to hold their feet to the fire. We had the community there. There was about a couple hundred people there. Well, what happened? What happened is a, a group came by chanting. They were angry, and rightly so, about Daniel Cruz's death. They were pointing the finger at the mayor. And instead of allowing, and there was so much anger, and instead of allowing the community meeting to go on, here's this other group now from the left. They come in and they disrupted the whole community meeting, disrupted it, uh, snatched the mic, disrupted everything. And then now you had a confrontation between this group that was coming in and wouldn't let anybody or have a discourse and ask questions because they felt that they had the right not to allow anyone to give their opinion, not unless they okayed it. And that's what I'm talking about. And that was a total disservice to the community. Now, they were right to be angry. They were right to protest. But they were not right when uh, to deny other people the right to listen and ask questions. So you can have the tyranny of the left, and you also can have the tyranny of the right. And when you have tyranny, I don't care where it comes from, it deforms a person's soul. And it deforms the soul of a community. And from that, for me, the fact is, is how do I become a person not who acts out of anger and acts out of vengeance, but one who really acts out of caring and love and concern. And I think Marvin Gaye talks about that in his iconic album, What's Going On? And mm-hmm. Mercy, Mercy Me. And, uh, and he asked that question, we need to bring some love in here today. you know. And basically, I think that having a firm foundation, and I know it sounds romantic. I know it sounds to others kind of goofy, but the fact is to to really have your being freed by love and loving concern is much better than being in a prison guarded by hate and vengeance and bitterness. That's beautifully said again. There there are two things. One, One is a comment and the other I want to ask you a practical question. The comment is we have a teacher that some of us are going to start studying more in depth tonight, as a matter of fact, Samuel Lewis, who is a, an American mystic who wasn't very well accepted. I never met him in person, but he probably was pretty eccentric. And uh, the hippies found him. And so this was in the 60s and the 70s, and there was a lot of commotion going on. And He was out in California, and uh, they were trying to get him to go to peace demonstrations. And he said, I don't go to any peace demonstrations that do not demonstrate peace. And he wasn't just talking about calmness. The peace he was talking about is that deep peace that you have when you you have that connection. Yes. You know, and I've always, and he was a, 
Uh, he was a firebrand from what I heard. <clears throat> like he was a, I mean, he spoke loudly and uh, he was going to get his point across, which made him distasteful to a lot of people. And what we've learned is uh, uh, before the hippies found him, he, he wasn't accepted in America, but he traveled to the East and right away, the Buddhist recognized him and, and recognized him as a Dharma master and gave him a title in the appointment. And he goes to Pakistan and he's recognized as a Sufi and he's given a robe and he's a Sufi master. And it was the Americans who couldn't get him because he wasn't, he wasn't doing it the way he was supposed to do it, whatever, you know. He wasn't black, so he, he probably could preach like you preach. But he was a white Jewish guy. You know, and he just had it. He had it from when he was, uh, from when he was a kid, from from reading his writings. So I I get that, and I think about him saying, "No, I don't go to peace demonstrations. So don't don't demonstrate peace." So the practical question I have for you is, when there's a group in a position of power, and they're not they're not really listening. It's not sincere, and you can usually tell that. And we have, I think, we have a lot of that going on now. You can demonstrate peacefully and try to talk and reason, but it doesn't get anywhere right. because power is power. Right. I can understand the frustration of if you're not going to listen to me, then it goes up a notch. And, it go, and that happened in the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. We could have demonstrated. I mean, you, again, you were more in that than I was. Yep. So from a practical point of view, what do you do when the power is so entrenched that reasoning and openness and discussion is either not allowed or it's allowed but not taken seriously because they, they just know they have the power? I, I think being an old organizer, you have to take it up a notch and you just do. I think it was Dr. King who said that the, um, the riots are, are, are the uh, desperate cries of the unheard. Mm -hmm. um, right. So, um, in that sense, you have to take a page from Dr. King, take a page from Gandhi, mm -hmm. take a page from Frederick Douglass and others. And, and one thing I've learned also is um, when power does not respond, then you have to analyze what buttresses and supports that power. And basically, you, you will find and you hit on something which is. Well, money. Usually money is a lifeline <laughs> to power. <laughs> so, so, so therefore, you, you look and you find that money source that supports the power structure and you damage it. It might be a boycott. Mm -hmm. it, it, it might be blocking a, a, a particular store or something like that. Whatever it is, you have to bring it up a notch. And believe me, when the power structure's money is used as a source, then they will call for negotiations. They will sit down and they will talk. I think that's what Dr. King had to do. That's what Gandhi had to do with the British. Mm -hmm. um, you, could, you couldn't get away with that with Hitler, though, because Hitler was a different type of uh, uh, a demonic person in terms of that. But in terms of power brokerage, it's always the money source. It is always the use of communications. That's what you have to do. You have to take it up a notch when power doesn't listen because power will concede to nothing but what? Power. Power. Right. Right. And so you have to organize people for power. And during the 70s, the whole issue of community control of schools and community control of other programs was organized by community organizers to organize the people for the purpose of power. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, I, and I don't think it was it, it's so much in these days, but at one time people used to be afraid of that word power because they felt that the word power was somehow an anathema to their spirituality. But right. The, right. The, 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 the fact is we deal with power structures every day. And so if you're going to deal with the power structure, you have to deal with the power structure on the basis of power. That might include uh, registering people to vote. It might include a number of different options, but always uh, you have to kick it up a notch without resorting to violence.
you cannot resort to violence because once you resort to violence, then you have no moral, no moral legs to stand on. Mm-hmm. It's a lot, a lot of patience. Yeah, and uh, that's where I think the firm inner foundation mm-hmm. serves us. That you know you have this connection to something that's greater than you, yeah. and hopefully that fuels the patience. The other part is what I hear you saying is. Nothing says you have to be not powerful. I mean, you don't have to be violent, but you can strategize, you can boycott. I mean, I've left organizations because I couldn't work from the inside anymore and they wouldn't listen. So I decided to go on the outside. And I don't know how effective that is, but I didn't get violent. So those are really, you know, I'm thinking about um, like the book burnings that are starting. Yes. That is just, (laughs) I just... You know, I, uh, I I tell my friends that the older I get, the more to the left I get. I mean, I used to think that I was going to get older, I'd get, I'd get stuck and I'd be more conservative. And it's like, sometimes I think Bernie Sanders isn't left enough. <laughs> so it, it's like burning books, burning books. I know. Isn't that something? To kill a mockingbird? <laughs> It's, it's like where and it's like so you know but but you see that and you know historically yeah. it's like yeah I know where that was done before yeah absolutely and absolutely. then but but still you're you're saying you can't stoop to the level of violence nope you cannot you strategize somehow you don't build a bigger bonfire you just right. you know you pour right. water on it you republish the books or. I mean, what I like is the bookstores that are saying, here are the ones that are being burned and banned. Come here and you can buy them. I kind of <laughs> like that. So we have just a, a few minutes left. Any comments that anyone would like to make? Reverend Stewart, could you, could you just say a little bit more about why James Cone in particular? What, what was something that he said that he thought hit the point? Uh, okay, thank you, Dr. Uh, Wilkinson. James Cone, um, let, let me give you the context, because Doc knows this. J- James Cone was a professor of systematic theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Like all theologians at that particular time, from early times on up, from the apostolic fathers up to this particular time, most of the theologians had their foundational intellectual roots in European theology, and especially German European, German theology. That's what flavors it. And so, hence, you had all these theologians writing. You had uh, Karl Barth, you had uh, others at that particular time, Paul Tillich and others. And they were saying some good things, but uh, the, the formations that they were using and the concepts and the themes were using only appealed to white folk. There was nothing there that they said that appealed to the consciousness, nor the struggle, nor the pain and the hopes of the oppressed Black people. And so Cone comes and turns everything upside down, being a true prophet himself, and begins to to write and, and deliver his thought about Black history and, and, and European history and slavery in the context of the struggle for Black liberation. And so what made Cone significant was the fact that he used Blackness in his book as an ontological symbol of being for Black pain as well as Black hope. Black suffering as well as looking at a Black future where there is freedom Black people as well as for everyone else. And so he began to shape this and he began to look at his starting point was God language. Uh, because really God language really begins to shape everything. You know, you have philosophy language, so you have God language. Well, who is God? What is God for? Is God just about overlords or is he really concerned about the oppression and slavery, etc.? And so he takes as his starting motif the bondage of Hebrews in Egypt. 
And from there, as an expression of, of freedom, as opposed to slavery, he begins to, to uh, really uh, write this out, broad stroke it, brush it, develop it, and looks at the history of Black people in America, and then begins to uh, look at the God of the Oppressed. And see, Cone wrote several books, uh, God of the Oppressed, Black Power and Black Theology, Black Theology of Liberation. Because, see, European theology was not concerned about liberation. It was concerned about comfort. It was concerned about keeping things as it is. Cone turned the whole pin around and began to talk about the concepts of liberation, the God of freedom. Now, during the, um, the early 20th century, uh, there was a movement about the social, called the social gospel. And this social gospel was Washington Gladden and, and some others. I can't think of the other person's name who was really paramount in that. But the social gospel talked about dealing with the poor because remember, immigrants were coming over, Irish, Germans, etc. They themselves were placed in neighborhoods that were poor, that were dilapidated. They, they were trying to find uh, jobs and things of that sort. And then you had the, the rich who were really discounting them. And so this is all about labor, the labor market of people not having enough bread and food to eat and stuff like that. So, but the social gospel dealt with the division of class in society with poverty, but it never dealt with race. Cone, in his departure, dealt with race. And that's why his writings and the Black theological model uh, resonated so deeply with me. Because I, as a Black man, could relate to what he was saying. And in his writings, the state of consciousness is, okay, the Bible, you know, and, and everything, the interpretation of it and everything is written by white, white theologians and white biblical writers and things of that sort, you know. So, so there it is. But Cohen looks at the source. He, he looks at not only the source, but he looks at the, the writers themselves. He looks at theologians themselves, and he begins to paint a totally comprehensive and different picture, which looks at the liberation of Black people. And hence, other people began in parallel courses to do the same thing. You had Gutierrez and uh, deal with Latin American liberation theology. Then you had women's theology, which began to come about because women were oppressed too in, in a patriarchal society. So that began to come out, about. So in some sense, a uh, cone dealing with, with sources, dealing with uh, a European theological history, dealing with African history, dealing with Black history, dealing with the movement in terms of Black society and oppression and racism, just turned everything over on its head. And that's why Cone appealed so much to me then and continues to appeal to me and a significant number of Black students at that particular time who were in seminary, uh, not only at Colgate, but at Princeton, at Yale, at Harvard Divinity Schools, and, and all these places. Thank you. On a personal note, a question came up asking you to talk about your cancer and how you overcame that. Oh, well... I retired from the prison system. And that's another thing we can talk about too, yeah. but we don't have time today. You do know you're, you're coming back another time, don't you? Oh, yeah, okay, Henry. <laughs> the 2008, I retired. I think it was the last day in December. 2009, I think it was January or February. I wasn't feeling well, and I noticed that my eyes had gotten jaundice and uh, my, finger, my, my um, fingernails, et cetera. I was sweating. I didn't like the smell of roast meat at all. And, and, I, and I love roast meat. I'm, I'm, I'm a meat eater. I've been trying to get into vegetarianism <laughs> and I failed every time. Uh, but I, I, I couldn't stand the smell of roast meat. Any type of, I couldn't stand it. I would throw up. And so my wife said, you need to go to the doctors. because I And I, and I thought I had the flu or something like that. Ah, I'm not going. You know, I'll, I'll get better. No, you need to go. So I went. And 
They checked me, asked me questions and things of that sort. They sent me to a gastroenterologist, had a CAT scan, and found a tumor in my bile duct. And Dr. Wilkinson, being an MD, no, they, they, they termed it cholangeal carcinoma. And it was a tumor. Uh, I, I guess there's some tributaries or something like that that come from your pancreas, from your gallbladder and liver and stuff like that. And it was blocking everything. And so at first, they thought I had pancreatic cancer. And because what they indicated to me was that the pancreas had formed some type of defensive something around the pancreas itself. And so usually people will have one biopsy for them to look at whether it's malignant or benign. I had four biopsies, four, mind you. And uh, finally, they said, well, it's not pancreatic cancer. And so to make a long story short, I had to go through the Whipple procedure. And the Whipple procedure is where they take out half your stomach, they take out your gallbladder, they take out the head of your pancreas, and then they take out uh, a part of the, I think it's the upper part of your intestines. Uh, and I had all this done to me. And then I had to go through radiation. And the last day, uh, I had to go through um, chemo. The chemo, I developed a neuropathy from the chemo. And also what they call chemo brain. And I never heard of chemo brain before. <laughs> but, but I heard about it then because I had it. And uh, chemo brain and neuropathy. And then from the chemo brain and the neuropathy to the radiation. The last day I'm going to radiation. No, a couple of days before I'm going to radiation because I had two more sets of radiation to do. But I went to this one. And as soon as I got in the room, I started throwing up, getting sick on both ends. Right. Both ends now really sick. And so they take me and they they put an IV in me. And the doctor, Dr. Katz was his name, is his name. He said. Uh, your husband's had enough. You know, um, he can't take anymore. So I never finished the radiation. And that was about 12 or 13 years ago. I had the cancer. I had the whipple procedure. The 13 years ago, I had that. And doctors today tell me that most people have a five-year survival rate. And my primary physician said that he had had three people with a ripple procedure. Two of them are dead, and I'm the only one that has survived. And then I had a friend uh, who was a, a guard at Albion Correctional Facility. She had had the ripple procedure, too, and she had passed away maybe a couple of years back. And so I am blessed to have still be living, and which in some sense gives me a, more of a spiritual impetus to do what I have to do. Many people don't know that the side effects of the Whipple procedure, it's something else because you can't maintain any weight. You're constantly up and down. Every piece of food that you eat, it goes right through your system. It doesn't stay there. It just goes right through. And so I have to drink a lot of Ensure. Uh, I have to try and eat as much protein as I can in order to at least keep my health up and my strength. But Still, it's, it's, it's good to be alive, but at the same time, the crucible of it and the side effects of it are a struggle in terms of good quality life. What helped you get through all the ordeals? Well, my family and my friends, they are really a comfort to me, but more than that is, for me, it's the Word of God, it's prayer and meditation, and knowing that I have a purpose and I have a destiny. There are so many things that, that, that accompany this Whipple procedure because uh, usually with Whipple, they want you to check your, your sugar, right? Glucose. And then you have to stab yourself with it. I stab yourself with a needle and mm -hmm. stuff like that, you know? And uh, I had to do that in my belly. I, I never had to pinch my belly before, my skin before and put a needle in it. And, oh, God, it was awful stuff. And then hit your finger uh, and get the blood and stuff like that and put that on something. Uh, it, it, all that was, was new to me. And it, it shook me up. But what really shook me up is when the doctor told me in the beginning, after they did the examination, you have cancer. Mm. And to hear that, 
to hear that relative to yourself. Now, you can deal with somebody else having cancer, sort of, in a sense. But you having it, that disturbs your existential well-being. I mean, it, it was like a giant took a fist and hit me right in my solar plexus and knocked the wind out of me. And I would dare say, and, and I'll say it, it disturbed my faith. If I was in a boat and a storm came up and took out my rudders, that's what hearing this news about cancer did. It was devastating. And not only was it devastating, but the other thing is, are the itching all in your body, the itching and, and trying to get relief and you can't get relief. That and the, the, the dreams, mm. the nightmares, the anxiety that fills your whole being with foreboding and dread until you come to a point that, Lord, I, I can only rely upon you for your help for your mercy and your grace. Please help me. And it was a total surrender. Because you see, for me, as I reflect on this, you can talk things about faith and hope and love until you are confronted with a penultimate concern, with a catastrophic illness. And then when you are confronted with that penultimate concern and that catastrophic illness, it can blow your whole world up. And so it turned my world upside down. And I was sinking into depression and mentioned to my wife and daughter, I said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't sit here at the house. I've got to get involved. Uh, God is calling me to do something else. And so hence, we co-founded together the United Christian Leadership Ministry. And that's, that's uh, when you did that. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yep. No sooner than after that, because I was getting depressed. The other time I got depressed was when my mother passed away in 1991. And that really hit me for a loop, her death. And then to get the cancer. Right. Excuse me. Excuse me. That's all right. Well, talk about putting faith in action. Yep. The cancer really hit me hard. Yeah. Yep. As a physician, too, and again, we could talk about this a lot, too. You didn't do a bypass. You didn't, you didn't say, well, only prayer, and I'm not going to go see any doctors. You did that, and you had your family, and you had your faith. And then... You get through, you're depressed. I mean, what a heck of an antidepressant. You get involved and you help people. That's very moving. I mean, the, the United Christian Leadership Ministry that we had, we, I tried to tease him to talking about that a little bit more, but he's going to have to come back again and talk about that. But th that's a big deal. That's a lot of energy. And that's doing a lot of, a lot of advocacy work in Rochester. And uh, he captured Kathleen. <laughs> She uh, started working with him, and that was like, that's the place she wanted to be. I'm harder because I don't go out and do that kind of stuff, but you're working on me too. So, even be like, even before the, before the cancer was the years I spent as a pastor, as a chaplain mm -hmm. at Five Points. And that's another chapter where you see pain and suffering and oppression right up front. You yeah. see it right there. Maybe the next time we meet, we can spend a little more time on what I would call activism. Mm. <laughs> You're calling liberational work and a little bit more about the details of what those activities are. But I'm so thankful and appreciative that you are willing to you were willing to share this time your personal experience, the foundations that led you to who you are and what you're doing. and you know, your, your deeply personal experiences. Not a lot of people can do that. I'm so thankful and appreciative. Thank you. If you find yourself enjoying our podcasts, please do us a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Give us a review on iTunes or post it on social media. If you or someone you know would like to participate in a future podcast, please connect with us through the Contact Us page. 
See our events calendar page for dates to our next live podcast recordings. We'd love for you to participate and ask questions. And be sure to check out Joel Lessie's podcast, Unraveling Religion, on your favorite podcast app. Alchemical Dialogues are live and unscripted conversations recorded on Zoom, brought to you by the great folks of Amber Light International, a nonprofit organization co-founded by Henry Curtella, MD, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, LCSW. We choose topics from our current social and cultural climate with an emphasis on humanism and spirituality.